to do with what we just did together and the way that one member in the body of Christ affects the rest of the body of Christ. Um, you know, this is uh, sort of, you know, only in the negative, uh, but there is the positive sense also um, that as, uh, you know, Paul says, when one member is honored, then the whole body is honored in the process. So uh, the victory that the Lord had in Joshua chapter 6, uh, Jericho, and right, let's be clear about that, the Lord had the victory there, right? It wasn't the people, it wasn't the army of Israel, it was the Lord who performed that victory. Um, as we move forward into this, it's important to recognize that the, the greater sin and focus is upon Achan, but everyone engaged in this circumstance bears responsibility for what transpires here. It affects the entirety of the group. It's, it's never <laughs> good when you come from a victory uh, and then the Holy Spirit has to include the word but, right? Great victory, conquering of Jericho, Lord's will done, but. Uh, that's always a tough way to start a chapter, and to go from the great heights to the depths of what follows. Be aware, be on your guard whenever you experience the great victory, the great milestone, the great progress in your life, that immediately following, right? Your enemy's not going to let you get away with that. He's going to be right there to greet you with, you know, we always used to say the stick in the spokes. Did you ever have that experience as a kid, you know, where you're riding your bicycle and the stick goes through your front spokes and the front tire just stops dead. And you just get to do the old Superman out over the uh, handlebars and crumple yourself up on planet Earth. It's really, really tragic. And so it is with victory. You think that things are going wonderfully. And uh, you're met with your enemy and uh, his intentions. So Joshua chapter 7 verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things for Achan... The son of Carmi, the son of Zebdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. So a couple of things to consider in this. Uh, bluntly stated, the scripture talks about various degrees of sin. And sin does have various degrees. The sacrifices have different degrees where one thing is going to have to be offered and in another circumstance a different thing has to be offered and that's because we can sometimes cross the line inadvertently god has defined something as being sinful and we conduct ourselves in it and then become aware that we've done it this is specifically described as a trespass right and you do get the concept from what we call trespassing today, right? Clearly posted sign that says, don't go any further. 
This is not your territory. This is not your land. You don't belong here. Do not cross this barrier. God has clearly defined, right? We read here the accursed things. It isn't that these things are deadly and poisonous or somehow off limits within themselves. Uh, the things that we're going to see listed, right? God allows his people to have wealth, allows his people to have these things. It's that God has said, these things belong to me. In this setting, in Jericho, these things belong to me. So to reach across the line that God has said, don't become beyond this barrier, this is mine, that makes it accursed. It makes it a thing that's going to experience punishment. It's, it's inside his territory, and you don't get to cross the line and take it for yourself. God's anger burned against the children of Israel, mostly because of the blatant disobedience. Right? I often hear that whole thing about you know the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. You know, the God of the Old Testament is vengeful and angry and judgmental, and the New Testament is gracious and kind and merciful. And what we find is, right, he claims of himself that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchanging. What makes him burn with anger here in this moment is he's clearly defined this as off-limits, and in particular, Achan has just crossed over the line. I don't care what God says. I'm going to do that anyway. Uh, that's always a dangerous position, Old Testament or New Testament. If God has said, this is outside your purview, then stay out of there. D don't meddle with that. If you're going to, know that the Lord's anger may burn against you in the process. And it is mostly for our own protection. We'll examine this a little further as we go along. So verse 2, now Joshua sent men from Jericho. So a few definitions. Maybe you want to make notes uh, in your Bible right here. Jericho means a fragrant place. By definition, that's what the word means, a fragrant place. Um, I'll just chase a totally disconnected rabbit trail. Um, Calvary Chapel Bible College sold its Marietta campus uh, recently, where my daughter went to Bible college, where many others have gone to Bible college. That's sold, gone, now going to be turned into a, a resort. Uh, I got to go there many occasions when my daughter was in Bible college, and in particular around the cafe. It's just really fragrant. They have all these flowers planted, grows, and of course, really excellent coffee inside the cafe. You know, to have all of that taken away is kind of depressing. Uh, Jericho belongs to the Lord, and it's a great victory. It's a wonderful place, smells good. You know how it is when you have positive fragrance associated with positive experience? You know, when you, when you have warm-baked cookies combined with grandma's house, you know, warm-baked bread combined with, you know, coming home. You know, there's different things that are associated. The victory here, fragrant place. So Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. Ai, a heap of ruin. That's what that word means by definition. A heap of ruin. Contrast, fragrant, beautiful, victorious place with a heap of ruin. It's interesting how these things 
uh, take place. It's beside Beth Avon, which by definition is house of vanity, house of self-indulgent pride, house of empty pursuit. Think about what the Lord is doing here with all of these locations and the sort of poetic justice that's interwoven with all of this experience. On the east side of Bethel, house of God. So between, right, uh, Jericho and uh, Bethel, the house of God, next to the house of emptiness is ruin. AI. There's no accident in all of this. You know, if God is standing up signposts like this in your life, you might want to pay attention. If he is saying to you very specific things and, and you're shrugging them off like, ah, that's merely coincidence, <laughs> you, know, you might want to consider, right? Red flags are designed by God for a purpose. You know, if, if it's popping up in your heart and you sort of hear the twang of the red flag as it goes off and you go, eh, no big deal, and you keep moving towards the problem. Uh, when it blows up in your face, right? You know, the explosion sounds a lot like, I told you so. Isn't that horrible? I hate that when that goes off that way. And then I have to live with the consequences. It's, it's, a, it's a tough experience. God is faithful in the process. The beautiful thing, you guys, is when we go through this, when Israel goes through this, they learn a lesson. We should learn a lesson. In the process of, okay, I ignored it, and I suffered the consequences. And I went into the problem, and I heard the Lord speaking to me. I saw the clearly posted signs, and I went anyway, and now I'm paying the cost. The next time the signs are going off, the next time you're hearing the clear warnings of law, look, if you move past those, then, right, fool me once, we say. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me. Learn. Learn the lessons. Right? People often say to me, how do I learn how to hear the voice of God? <laughs> well, I'd like to tell you there's an easy way to do it. Mine has been through trial and error. I don't know about you. Learning how to hear the voice of God saying to you, stop. Or saying to you, proceed. Follow me into this. Right? If you were filled with nervous anxiety and overwhelmed with emotion and intrepidation and you went anyway and then experienced the consequences the next time you're moving forward and you're filled with anxiety and intrepidation and you proceed anyway no shame on you the lord is trying to warn us right proverbs tells us that wisdom cries out from the heights she's not hidden somewhere where you can barely hear her voice you know, and it would be impossible for you to find her. She positions herself plainly to be seen, plainly to be heard, cries out with a clear, ringing voice. For anyone that would listen to it, she's there. And there Solomon tells us that we should make her, her our, our dearest sister, our closest kin. We, we should love her and embrace her and draw her closely to ourselves. If we do not then we have to suffer the consequences. School of hard knocks, we sometimes call it, right? Look, <clears throat> you know, some of you have graduated from the school of hard knocks. And, you know, you have master's degrees. 
from the school of hard knocks. That's a wonderful thing, right? But, but let's be clear, if you're still enrolled and you're still taking night courses, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's not a pride. If you've graduated, right, you paid, you paid the dearest of tuition costs, right? A heavy price to be paid, learning from experience. If you've graduated, praise God. If you're still taking classes, I'll say blatantly, shame on you. Right? Stop. There's no pride in being enrolled in that school. The only, the only pride, the only dignity is in the graduation, the moving on, the being done, the completion of the courses. Let the Lord deliver you in the process. So here, these different descriptions on the east side, Bethel, house of God, he spoke to them saying, go up and spy out the country. This is very similar to what they've done previously, sending in spies to discover what the circumstances are. So the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, do not let all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. Now listen, there are tens of thousands of people in Ai. And they're going to send a few thousand people. The victory that they've just had, you could perhaps read this and think, well, they're a formidable you know, army and they have certain experiences in battle and to send two or three thousand is actually a reasonable consideration. Understand this, that they have 32,000 men at their disposal who are elite fighting force in Israel. And they, they've taken a position like, oh, we could just send a small contingency. We don't need to send. Wouldn't it make more sense? If you've got 32,000, like you've got hundreds of thousands of people who are capable of fighting. You've got 32,000 highly skilled warriors. And you're saying only send two or 3,000. Why not send 32,000, right? Just mop up. If you show up outside a city of 10, 15,000 people with 32,000 highly trained fighting men, you might not have to fight at all, right? They might just walk out and go, where do we sign the surrender form? How do we get done? We don't want, we want to do Instead, right, as much as we look at Aiken in this situation, and clearly he's the center of this problem, there is a larger problem in the hearts of these people that is saying, ah, we can handle this. This is no big deal. No, they aren't going to handle this situation. And it's the hidden sin of Achan that's poisoning the entire process. But by extension, this prideful approach, right, which is what the core of vanity is, is pride, right? The city of vanity that we just spoke about that's present with them. Uh, vanity is what's going on in the circumstance. We can handle it. Look what we just did to Jericho. You didn't do anything to Jericho. God bulldozed Jericho for you. You you went in, right, and put to death everyone that opposed you after God had already had the victory. We, we very often function this way, <coughs> flush with a victory. 3,000 
is you know two or three thousand all it's needed. Go up and attack AI. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of AI are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of AI, and the men of AI struck down thirty-six men, for they chased them from the gates of Shabiram and struck them down uh, on the descent as they were fleeing away. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. A couple of things in this. If you're thinking, well, 3,000 people in defeat and, you know, 36 men. That's not a massive defeat. Well, imagine having to have 36 funerals. 36 coffins all lined up at once. Imagine the morning, right? Every one of them represents a family. You know, there are 36 wives, right? 64 uh, parents, children, all. I mean, by extension, the circle of immediate family mourning gets bigger and bigger. All because of what? Hidden sin. Achan is affecting everyone, and the pride of Israel is poisoning all of them. They're all experiencing this pain. Uh, secondly, therefore, the hearts of the people, Israel, melted, became like water. This is exactly what was said of all the people of Canaan when Israel, number one, crossed the Red Sea. Rahab said, our hearts melted within us like wax. And then when they crossed the Jordan, they were terrified at the presence of Israel. And now they've gone out and in their sin and in their pride been defeated. And now their hearts are melting. They are experiencing the very emotional and spiritual condition that their enemies had previously been experiencing. Maybe you know what I'm talking about, how the tables turn. Uh, they... Um, if they had sent more, part of this, that may have been gracious. If they had sent 32,000, uh, you know, they sent two or 3,000, and they've got 32,000, they've got hundreds of thousands. If they had sent more, they might have had more dead, too. Right? Because it is Achan's sin at the center of this thing. They were not going to be victorious. Sometimes Christianity looks at things this way from a human sense. Oh, we went out into this and we were met with defeat. If only we had poured more resources into that, then we would have been victorious. Probably not. Is God your victory or are you your victory? Okay, there is an interesting statement that was put forward by a prominent teacher in Christianity years ago when he said, that in the book of Acts, if the Holy Spirit had been removed from the church, 90% of what was going on in the book of Acts would have immediately stopped. Whereas today, if you extract the Holy Spirit from the church, 90% of what's going on in the church would probably continue on just the same as it is. Because we function in the church based upon human strength. We have all these plans and these methods and programming and 
resources and and it has a certain degree of success uh, point being imagine how much more the su- successful the church might be today if we involved the work of the holy spirit that much more uh, the church is functioning on its own power uh, that that's uh, that's a real problem real problem when we are doing it without the Lord. Verse 6, Then Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord, until evening he and the elders of Israel, they put dust on their heads. They usually would just throw the dust into the air, is uh, what they would do, just in anger and fit of rage and uh, heartbroken mourning. Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over Uh, the Jordan at all, to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Uh, That sounds a lot like what the nation of Israel has accused God of all along the way. Right? And you want to check your own heart. You want to check your own heart. Uh, Because we, we very often get into situations and we say, you know, I was doing fine and then I started following the Lord and look now. I'm suffering. I'm being destroyed. The attitude is, God led me into this circumstance, and now I'm being destroyed in the circumstance. I was better off before when I was not following the Lord. It's quite an accusation against God. When the nation of Israel is delivered out of Egypt, and they're out in the wilderness, and God's provision is in their life, and they have that attitude like God has brought us out here into the wilderness to kill us. We read it and we think, what a terrible, you know, spoiled, rotten group of people that they would behave like that. And now we've just turned a few pages and we hear the leader of Israel, Joshua, saying something very similar. If you turn a few emotional pages into your own chapters in your own life, you read between the lines, sometimes you find the same thing. Where the thought crosses our minds about if I'm following the Lord and I'm suffering like this, then it must be God's intention to do me harm. It's not God's intention to do us harm at all. You might want to examine what's going on in our own lives, in our own behavior, our own circumstances. Where are we in our relationship with the Lord? Because that's what's being exposed here for us. Right? God does not want to. Don't, don't, read, don't ever read this and other situations and think, this is how God wants to treat people. Right? Here's... Cain and Abel, and, and Cain screws up, and God records it in the scripture, and everybody gets to see his sin. And then here's, you know, Achan, and everybody gets to see Achan's sin. And we turn the pages, and here's Ananias and Sapphira, and God just likes to expose people. God uses these as signposts for the rest of us. Okay? This, this sort of sin goes on all throughout human history. God stands a few of them up along the way so that we can all take notice of them and reflect upon ourselves to make sure that we're not following those examples. So that we're not, right? I mean, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, if you're familiar with that, in Acts chapter 5 was hypocrisy, right? God strikes them dead for hypocrisy. If God was striking everybody dead in the church for hypocrisy, like, you know, there might be two of us in this room. You know what I'm saying? It's just anywhere on planet Earth. 
He, he's, he's putting them out there as blatant examples for us to do a lot of self-examination to consider how much of this aligns with ourselves. So, you know, you brought us out here to destroy us. Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. Listen, I wonder if Joshua is thinking, you know, Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh chose to stay on the other side of Jordan and they've got all that great pasture land and they've got all of that great blessing for their herds. What if we would just been like them, right? We've looked forward into the two and a half tribes of Reuben, Gad, half the tribe of Manasseh, who become known as the Gadareans, right? And Jesus shows up on their shores in his ministry, and they have a demon-possessed man who's been living in the tombs and breaking chains with his bare hands. And when they cast the demon out of him, he goes into the herd of pigs, which they're not supposed to have in their land. And they all run down the cliff and drown in the Sea of Galilee because they stayed on the opposite side of the Jordan and they were captured by the Assyrians and taken away into captivity first where they worship the pig and they come back from Assyria raising pigs and demon-possessed men amongst them. Sometimes we, right, Asa says in the book of Psalms, my foot had almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Right? You're in God's promised land, experiencing God's victory and his promise. Jericho has fallen, and now you're looking back across the Jordan at Reuben and Gad and Manasseh, thinking we, we should have followed their example. No, probably not. Right? you got to run that line all the way out to the end and see where it goes. It goes to terrible places and terrible circumstances. Yes, there's hardships. Yes, there's defeats. Yes, there's battles, but understand God is with these people. He's providing for them. He's teaching them. He's showing them what they need to see. He's leading them through this process. Oh, Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies, meaning, you know, flees away? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name, okay? I could just let that sink in for a minute, but I'll just get to the punchline. He's imagining what their end is going to be when he has no idea what their end is going to be. He's doing that thing we sometimes do. I followed you and it turned out bad. And if I continue following, this is going to happen and that's going to happen and these terrible things will happen. It's all going to be bad. Sounds like he's hanging out with a group of teenagers right now. Just, sorry, my apologies. <clears throat> the drama, right? The, the, the one difficulty hits, and now they've thrown themselves on the ground, and they're acting like, God's brought us out here to destroy us. This is all going to be bad. Get over it. Here. Hear God, verse 10. So the Lord said to Joshua, keep this in mind. This is the Lord saying this to Joshua. Get up. He's praying right now. He's talking to the Lord. And, and notice the exclamation point right there. This is like you might say. Again, forgive me. To your teenager that's thrown themselves on the ground. 
Get up. Cut that out right now. Get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. We hear a very similar thing happen earlier with Moses. God leads them out of the nation of Egypt, and they come to a place where they can't go left or right, and the only thing that's straight ahead of them is the Red Sea. And they turn around, and the Egyptian army is now behind them. And Moses has a similar panic, and he falls on the ground and begins to pray and cry out to God and say, what am I supposed to do? And God says the same thing, get up, move forward. To hear Joshua, get up. There's a time to pray, you guys, and there's a time to act. Some people want to act like, oh, no, what we need to do every single time there's hardship is pray. If you think I'm somehow denouncing prayer, I absolutely am not. But there are some people who don't want to move into action. There are times to repent. There are times to work. There are times to do the things you know you're supposed to be doing. And acting like, oh, I've got to just be super spiritual right here, right now, and fall on my face and spend the next three days doing nothing but praying and reading my Bible. No, you need to repent and you need to get to work. You need to, here, get rid of the sin. That's the first thing. Recognize that there's sin, and we're going to begin the process right now, Joshua, of getting rid of the sin. So many people take the completely wrong approach to this whole process and what they're supposed to be doing in this situation. Therefore, the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies because they stole, they deceived, they trespassed, put it amongst their own stuff, but turned their backs <clears throat> before their enemies <clears throat> ran away because they have become doomed to destruction Neither will I be with you anymore. That's a heartbreaking thought. Unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Again, get up. Sanctify the people. You as the leader of the people, sanctify the people. And say, sanctify yourselves. Who does this Joshua think he is? Telling us how we're supposed to be spiritually. This man is literally in charge of this nation and he's going to say, I'm in the process of sanctifying you and you are now going to sanctify yourselves. That needs to happen in our lives where we stand up sometimes and say, I have sanctified myself unto the Lord and as the head of this household, I'm saying to everyone in this household, you will sanctify yourselves. And I'm sanctifying this household of these items of this behavior, of these circumstances. If you have a certain level of authority and influence, it's important that you use that for the Lord where appropriate, to, to move to action. I, I, have, I have talked to parents who recognize the sin 
in their lives and the lives uh, of others in their household, but they don't want to say anything. They don't want to do anything inside their house. The sin of Achan is affecting this entire nation. Uh, we sit around and say, well, other people have rights, and you know, certain things don't. That's just them. Those those things don't affect other people. They're you know they're breaking the laws. They're committing crimes. But you know it's it's a victimless crime. I don't know how many times I've heard that. It's a victimless crime. There's no such thing as a victimless crime. There there is no such thing as a victimless crime. That that doesn't exist. That's a myth. That's a myth that criminals have created and convinced the rest of the culture that it's true. We're in the process. This, this week, right, you know, the House has approved the legalization of marijuana for the entire nation. The Senate's probably going to strike that down. But, um, you know, everybody's like, it's a victimless crime. Really? Really? Well, if we all legalize it, then there will be no victims. Really? Go to the nations where it's being produced and see if they're not victimizing those people there. Right. Uh, you know, there there's a lengthy study that has been accomplished regarding marijuana alone. And for every quarter ounce that comes into the U.S., someone has died. For every quarter ounce that comes into the U.S. Someone outside this nation has sacrificed their life in order to get it into here. You know. Pornography, it's a, it's a victimless crime. Really? Do you understand how many women who have been forced into that industry want to get out, are trying to get out, and are being held captive inside that industry? They're enslaved to it, literally. Not even just through desire and payment and money. They wish they could leave. I, I worked with a guy uh, briefly in Massachusetts who removes the tattoos from the necks of women that are brought to him from Rhode Island. He actually works with the Massachusetts state government and the Rhode Island state government. They pay him and he, they bring these women to him and he removes the tattoos from their neck because that's the brand of their owner. They have this tattoo on their neck so they can be easily identified by their pimp on the streets. It's not victimless, you guys. If it's, if it's a sin, right? If it's a sin, if God has declared it a sin, someone's suffering. Someone, someone is being abused in the circumstance. God didn't put these laws in place because he knows what's wicked, awesome, and fun and doesn't want us to have any of it. He's trying to, you know, that's the way the world teaches that oh all of these things are good all of these things are fun all these things are enjoyable and somehow christianity the bible god doesn't want us to have these things no they're all very very damaging and god is trying to protect us from these things so here he's saying get up sanctify the people say sanctify yourselves tomorrow because thus says the lord god of israel there is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. Proverbs 28 verse 13 says, he who covers his sin will not prosper. 
Whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. These things very often are the only things that are crippling our lives. 7.14, in the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families. And the family of which the Lord takes shall come by household. And the household which the Lord takes shall come by man. Then it shall be that he who takes uh, is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Uh, the way this is written and other explanations we have of this occasion lead us to understand that they use the Urim and the Thummim to determine who this person was. The Urim and Thummim, we do not know what they were. And I just need to be <clears throat> very clear about that. What I'm about to say is speculation. It's good speculation, but we don't know. Okay? They, they, Urim and Thummim, were kept in a pouch behind the breastplate of the priest. What we suspect is that they were identically cut stones, one that was white and one that was black. They would place the stones in the pouch. Again, this is what we speculate. And they would inquire of the Lord in such a way that the answer would be yes or no. The white stone would indicate yes. The black stone would indicate no. So bring in the first tribe. Lord, is this the tribe? Reach into the pouch. Pull out black stone. No. Move them on. Put the stones back in. Roll them around. Next tribe, is this a stone until you get the white stone? This is the tribe. Bring them in by families. Same thing. We suspect they, we know for certain they use the Urim and Thummim to determine which of the tribes, which of the families, which man it was. And they come down to the person and they, you know, you can speculate all day long. In the end, the the drawing of straws, the inquiring of the Urim and Thummim comes to the very man who has done this thing. The, the man is chosen through this process. So jo Joshua rose early in the morning, brought Israel by their tribes. The tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the clan of Judah. He took the family of the Zerahites. He brought the family of the Zerahites man by man. And Zebdi was taken, then he brought the household man by man, Achan, the son of Camri, the son of Deb Zebdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. The lot fell directly upon the man who had done these things. Now Joshua said to Achan, my son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him and tell me, what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Now let's be clear, just as quick as we can, for time's sake. Confession. The word is homologeo. And it means to say the same thing. Okay? Our culture struggles with this. You read the scripture, whatever subject we're talking about, God says, this is sin. Our culture says, no, it's not actually sin. It's an illness. Or no, it's an addiction. God says, no, sin. As long as we're going to go around redefining 
that's not confession. We're not confessing our sin. We're not saying God has declared it a sin and I agree with God it is a sin. We're redefining it. And then we add behind that all kinds of defining elements. And so that's why, that's why you guys, we have such low percentages of people being delivered from their sin. Because there's no confession going on. No one's actually confessing. I'm making a choice to rebel against God and live in this sin. Instead, we want to, isn't that always pleasant when someone has wronged you and you find yourself in a confrontation with them and they begin a process of justification? Well, okay, but really, I mean, you don't know the whole story. And then they start to explain and you feel like choking them. Okay, pray for me. Uh, you're, you're not like that. Redefining. No, you stole from me. You took from me. Well, I wouldn't call it stealing. And then they begin to redefine, redefine, redefine. The, the term confession is homilageo, which is to say the exact same thing. You stole from me. You're right, I stole from you. That's confession. And that's what the Lord is inviting in this moment. He's not looking for any other, right? That's why justice has been lost in our nation. Because we're listening to all the social justice warriors. And they're adding to justice other definitions, right? Oh, no, we can't just say this person, you know, actually committed this crime. We have to examine why did they commit that crime? You know, where were they raised? What, what was the uh, financial environment? What was the social environment? What, was, what were all the mitigating circumstances surrounding the individual and therefore, yeah, no, they're not really guilty. And so justice isn't served. Everyone's suffering in the process because no one will agree with God. They've abandoned the word of God. They don't open the book. They don't examine his definitions. They look to themselves and they judge amongst themselves according to themselves. It needs to be that we would agree with God. Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, it's actually John the Baptist when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. He said to them, brood of vipers. Always nice when somebody calls you a venomous snake. That just warms the cockles of your heart, as we used to say. You know, way to win friends and influence people. Who warned you to flee from the wrath of God? John then said, therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Repentance. Homilageo is confession. Repentance is to go the opposite direction. So you were in rebellion to God, living your own life, doing whatever you wanted to, and then you finally said, I'm in rebellion to God, living my own life, doing whatever I want to. I will now turn around and go the opposite direction and do instead what God wants me to do with my life. That's, that's confession. Amalegeo saying the same thing, and repentance, turning around and going the opposite direction. These are the two things that are needed in our culture. That begins with the fear of God. The fear of God. Without knowing God, you're never going to fear him. So back in chapter 7 at verse 20, then Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment. Yeah, that's worth it. 
That's worth your life. That's the worth the life of 36 other people. You know, clothes. That makes sense. 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them. There's the root. Coveting. I coveted them and took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent with the silver under it. You dig a little deeper, you're going to find the whole thing. It's right there. 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 15, says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world is passing away and the lusts of it, but he who does the will of the Father abides forever. These things are temporary and dying. If you love the Lord your God, those things are eternal and never deteriorate. If our heart is set on the things of the world, then you're always going to stumble. Always going to stumble. Because we're constantly thinking through that lens of me, mine, I, I want, I need, I desire, I can't live without it. I'm going to get it. If you instead are thinking through the lens of he, he wants this in my life. He desires these things for me. He will provide for me. I can be content in him, right? It was Abraham, the father of all of our faith. Jewish and Christian faith began with Abraham. God said to him in Genesis chapter 15, I am your great reward. I am. Not gold, not silver, not clothing, right? That was the big argument with the apostles. As they were saying, we left homes and families and jobs and circumstances. We don't have these things. Food, clothing, and shelter was what they were talking about. And Jesus said what to them? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. If you've had the opportunity to do that, live on both sides of this coin, one where you were self-pursuant, I'm going to get, I'm going to do, I'm going to be, I'm going to have, I being at the center of that, and then flip that over and begin to live for him, what you quickly began to learn was when I will focus on him, he provides for me. He takes care of me. He sustains me. So Joshua, verse 22, sent messengers. They ran to the tent. There it was, hidden in his tent, with his silver under it. He took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua, to all the children of Israel, laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had. They brought them to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. They wiped out this whole family. They destroyed all of them. If that sounds horrible to you, if it sounds like some level of genocide, some heartbreaking event, understand this, you guys. There's 36 families standing there 
who lost their husbands, lost their sons. There's hundreds of people who are heartbroken over the action of this one man. And by implication, the entire family knew about it. He brought this stuff into his home and the family was aware. So the secret was with all of them. Imagine the conversations that went on, right? No? Husbands and wives? You know? Husband comes home with all this stuff. You think wife is just going to be like, no problem. Glad you did that. Or is she going to be like, you're out of your ever-loving mind. And the arguments ensue. And then she shuts her mouth. And it stays in the house. And little by little, the kids become aware. And we're going to keep this family secret. And we're not going to tell anybody. What are you going to do with all of that stuff? You got some kind of stupid plan that's going to cause you to suffer anyway. And in the process, you start watching people die around you, and you know it's a direct connection to what you've done. Right? You can see the suffering in your own life per the rebellion to God, and you just continue on. Uh, right? You can sense, right? I'm making this confession from my own behaviors, from things I've done with my own life. If you're sitting right there and you have no idea what I'm talking about, praise God, right? Most of, most of us have had some level of compromise like this in our lives. And we've paid the cost and we've watched people around us pay the cost also. For our compromise. It is a beautiful thing in confession. There's a beautiful thing in departing from sin. From standing right up and saying, this is what I'm trapped in and I need to be done. You look at this and you think they just killed this whole family. Oh, this is an Old Testament signpost example for us to recognize ourselves in. What does the scripture tell us, right? If we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession. Homologeo, saying the same thing he does. Repentance, turning around, metanoia, changing your mind, changing the way you think about things, turning around your behavior, going the opposite direction. The Lord blesses that whole process. The thing of it is, you guys, it's a daily process, isn't it? It has to happen every single day. Why? Because you wake up tomorrow and there's Aiken in the mirror. Ready to rebel against God. Ready to cross the lines. Ready to trespass. And you've got to put him to death. Yourself. It doesn't have to be a public embarrassment. It doesn't have to be dragged out for everyone to see. You can just drive the sword of God's spirit, which is the word of God, through your own heart. And die mercifully there as you crucify yourself to Christ daily and you serve him and oh the joy right oh the victory oh the great fulfillment of Christ's purpose in your life no every single day lived like Achan is a torture is it not and when you add day after day after day right it's not just one plus one it's a multiplication factor isn't it 
It's one times a thousand, you know. It's three times a million, however that works out. And you can look back over the years and think, why did I waste so much time? Why didn't I just confess the thing I had buried in my heart? Why didn't I just bring it to the surface, right? Because you don't have to like line up behind the microphone and come here and expose yourself before the whole world. All you've got to do is go to his throne. Make confession. Let him purge that thing out and move on. Let Christ accomplish the victory, right? And, you know, again, to just move forward, the victory comes to them right after this. The very thing that they couldn't conquer, they turn around and immediately have victory over it. Have you been running into that brick wall endlessly saying, why can't I conquer this thing? Well, Go back to the confession. Go back to Christ in repentance and let him deliver you from the circumstance. I'll just give us the two verses to close. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus speaking, said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. That's where the victory is found. To close Joshua chapter 7, Looking at verse 26, then they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Listen, there's a point, and I just want to make the point in this, right? Remember the victory they had at Jericho? Where did that victory begin and end every day? At Gilgal where they had come up out of the Jordan River and placed the, the heap of stones, 12 stones stacked up. They started and ended every day until they had victory at Jericho at the place of remembrance, remembering what the Lord had done. Now, right, because they've rebelled against God, there's a massive heap of stones that's covering over this entire family that's buried you know, Achan in his entire house. Now they have a larger mound of remembrance. That, that That's sort of a shame, right? Twelve stones come up out of the river. Look at that and have a joy in your heart, right? Yeah, God parted the waters and we came across on dry land. That's a cool thing to stack of 12 stones. Now see the massive stone over Achan's house and you have to kind of hang your head and you have to kind of be ashamed. Yes, there's a victory in it but the heartbreak has to be accompanied with it. Much better to have the small stones, right? Much better to just have Gilgal than to have to have Acor as something that reminds you. It'll be a place of remembrance, but it's a much better thing to have that small monument to God. Does that make sense to us this morning? Yes. Well, we'll pick up with chapter 8 next week. Will you stand and we'll pray? His grace, you guys, don't walk out of here burdened. Don't don't do that. That's not the Holy Spirit doesn't do that. You know, if you're thinking about yourself, reflecting upon your character, God doesn't bring condemnation. He'll bring conviction. The Holy Spirit, that's his job. To bring conviction. He doesn't bring condemnation. He doesn't loom over you. He doesn't shout at you. He doesn't point the finger down upon you. 
He's the one who says, okay, we've messed up. Now let's move forward. Let's sanctify our household. Let's, let's leave these things behind and find victory in the Lord. Amen? Father, we thank you very much for your grace. We thank you very much for your love. We thank you for this message, difficult as it is, self-reflective as it is. Help us to be men and women who embrace what it is that you're saying, what it is that you're doing in each of our hearts, each of our minds. Lord, we want to see your victory. We want to see you conquer the things in our lives that you want to conquer. We bow before your authority. We respect your definition, your boundaries. Help us to cooperate with you. Help us to not rebel against you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.